Are you on the go and only have a short window to peek at the local headlines? We've got you covered. The KOSU Daily Podcast brings you Oklahoma news every weekday in a condensed and accessible way. Head over to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to the KOSU Daily to get the scoop on the latest Oklahoma news. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. A federal judge is refusing to put on hold a law banning transgender care for minors. Senate Bill 613 bars health care providers from providing gender transition treatment or procedures to any child. A challenge to the law was brought by the families of five transgender youth and one health care provider. Ryan, do you think Attorney General Gettner Drummond will start enforcing the law? Well, I think that he has to start enforcing the law. Um, and, you know, I think uh, a lot of folks in the state of Oklahoma should be grateful to the Attorney General for even being even saying that he wouldn't enforce the law during uh, dependency of this application for a temporary injunction. Uh, sought by the ACLU of Oklahoma and their clients. Um, you know that um, you know that in and of itself uh, was was a big step in delaying uh, enforcement. Now, keep in mind, one of the biggest consequences of this federal court decision is that it does not uh, the clock is now running. Uh, it's been running uh, on the november twenty third twenty twenty three deadline because if you recall, Senate bill six thirteen had a six month provision from the effective date back in May uh, that allowed those that were already receiving some sort of gender affirming care in the state of Oklahoma to either uh, uh, um, taper themselves off that care or find alternatives out of state to continue to receive that care. Uh, That's an enormous burden uh, on a lot of families and puts a lot of, uh, especially young people's health in, I think, serious jeopardy. Uh, of having to choose between complying with this law or even having the resources to go out of state to continue care. Uh, Also important to note is that this is not a final decision on the merits of the lawsuit. This was an application for a preliminary injunction. The plaintiffs in this case, the the families, the transgender youth, the physicians, have an incredibly high burden to meet in order to get a preliminary injunction. So uh, even, even though I felt that they'd met that burden, uh, just because they did not meet that burden today, there are a lot of steps. So I think that this will ultimately be appealed to the Tenth Circuit, uh, and then hopefully back to the Western District, where there will be a trial on the merits of the case. We've only had one of those, uh, to my understanding, in the nation so far, and that's been in Arkansas. And the federal district court there, after hearing all of the evidence, ruled in favor of the transgender youth, their parents, and the physicians uh, at issue in that case. Neva. Well, you have a situation where this Tulsa federal judge um, he he basically said that the, it is within the legislature's purview to determine what is appropriate for a minor with regard to these types of procedures or anything else. And we had Senator Julie Daniels uh, from Bartlesville, who was the House author or the Senate author of the measure, basically uh, saying that she was very pleased that this was completely in line with what the legislature has the prerogative to do in terms of protecting minor children from transition procedures or anything else that has to do with uh, protecting children in this situation. So I think um, we've seen that this issue has uh, gained traction and and uh, been in the courts across the country. I think there's, you know, as you say, 
uh, Ryan. I mean, there's a lot uh, left to be decided by by the courts. But in this instance, I think it is a uh, uh, it is a victory for the Oklahoma legislature in their action and the legislation, the measure that was signed by the governor on May 1st. So uh, we'll wait and see where this goes beyond. But uh, at this point, uh, it is exactly what the legislature intended. And I think what many Oklahomans want to find uh, as what takes place with respect to these types of procedures. The statewide virtual charter school board narrowly approves the contract for what could be the nation's first ever religious charter school. The vote was three to two for this legally binding agreement with Catholic leaders in Oklahoma to establish St. Isidore of Seville Catholic virtual school. Neva, what's next for the school? Well, I, I don't think it's any surprise. I think there was this expectation the boat would be exactly what it is. They would push this forward. Um, we've talked about it multiple times on the show, the fact that this is part of a bigger picture, the fact that uh, the Notre Dame uh, Law School Religious Liberty Initiative Clinic there has uh, been engaged for uh, more than a year, maybe two years here in Oklahoma with these folks uh, pushing, you know, pushing this uh uh, issue with, I think, the intent of it ultimately having to be resolved potentially by the United States Supreme Court. So it's got multiple steps in that uh, in that legal process to go. But in this instance, you have a board that basically had one foot out the door. The board is getting ready to uh, be uh, be uh, eliminated. And so you have these actions and all of the controversy that continues to swirl around it. And I think it's going to be an interesting thing. Yeah, I think for most Oklahomans, they probably haven't paid that much attention to this issue unless they're directly involved or, you know, have been prone to want to uh, uh, follow it very, very carefully. So I, I think it will be interesting to see again also what the legislature does if they weigh in in some fashion uh, with with some legislation that may have some impact one way or the other when they get back in February. Ryan. I think that this moves us uh, one step further toward towards uh, litigation. We already have litigation, but uh, you know now we're beginning to see that the framework of that litigation uh, come, come into being. The contract, it was interesting, during the meeting uh, before the uh, Virtual Charter School Board, uh, they had a contract that had been signed by the Catholic uh, proposed Catholic Charter School uh, and the state of Oklahoma, and they refused to give that uh, actual contract to the people in the audience for them to review. And those individuals, including the media, were told, if you want a copy of this, you've got to go through the Open Records Act uh, request process like anyone else. And uh, some media ultimately received uh, uh, that contract. But if you look at that contract, one of the things that it says is that if you enter uh, into this agreement, uh, into operating as a virtual charter school in the state of Oklahoma, as a religious virtual charter school, then you can operate uh, as a sectarian charter school. You can operate uh, under the precepts of your religion, which does seem to indicate that the Catholic charter school at question here uh, is most likely going to be enforcing its religious tenets upon prospective students who may or may not be Catholic. And I know that everyone talks about how this is religious liberty, religious freedom, but if you're a student in Oklahoma who is not Catholic or who does not adhere to uh, even Christianity, uh, going to this charter school uh, or having this as an option or having dollars diverted from your public schools into a school that is advancing a religious purpose, 
you know, that does affect you. Even if you don't ever touch this charter school, even if you don't ever apply there, even if you're not rejected, uh, having money diverted from public schools to this is an issue. And I think that ultimately, as Neva said, this will end up in front of the United States Supreme Court. The sense is, is that the current composition of the United States Supreme Court is one that would uphold uh, such an arrangement as the one that's being proposed here in Oklahoma. I certainly hope that that is not the case. It would go against decades and decades of Supreme Court precedent on uh, establishment clause issues that have been embodied in the First Amendment. But the court has changed. And as the court has changed uh, pretty dramatically, and as uh, the lower district courts and the and the circuit courts have also changed. The the Trump administration uh, did a uh, if they did a fantastic job at anything was packing the courts and they they really uh, you know came to be with Mitch McConnell you know leading that ship um, you know they packed the courts and you've got judges from all the way from the district court level to the circuit level uh, to the Supreme Court now that are possibly going to be ready to uh, overturn and a lot of precedent and allow something like this to move forward. You know, and it's interesting, too. I was thinking back, you know, in, in 1960, when John F. Kennedy first came into the presidency, into the White House, one of the things that quickly arose was was a very contentious dispute um, over federal, federal aid to Catholic schools. There was the uh, contingency of the American Catholic bishops at the time that were advocating that these parochial schools should get federal federal dollars. And it was this first Catholic president, John F. Kennedy, who opposed his own church uh, and said that the that that absolutely was incorrect and 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 based it upon a, in the interpretation of the of the First Amendment and uh, the the separation. So um, you know it's going to be a fascinating a fascinating thing to watch, which will take years. I mean, I, some people say it could take anywhere from you know four or five to eight or 10 years for this to finally make it through the process. So who knows even then what the makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court may look like, given the fact that we have this kind of an elongated process to go through the many steps that it will take ultimately to even have the possibility of being decided by the high court. And, and make no mistake here, the entire purpose of this is to end up in front of the Supreme Court. I, I don't think that there's really any genuine purpose here of ever operating a religious uh, Catholic-based charter virtual charter school in the state of Oklahoma. That's a sideshow. This is really about putting a legal issue in front of the United States Supreme Court. It, it uh, was from the beginning. Uh, it always will be. And that was certainly the case with the acceptance of this contract this week. Voters in Southwest Oklahoma's Senate District 32 pick Republican Dusty Devers and Democrat Larry Bush as their candidates in the December 12th special election to replace John Michael Montgomery. Montgomery resigned his seat this past summer to lead the Lawton Fort Sill Chamber of Commerce. Ryan, how do you rate this race? Well, I think that like many races in the state of Oklahoma, they're often decided in the primary. If you look at voter registration in this district, it leans heavily towards uh, the Republican Party. Uh, e even though this is a, a part of the state where I think Democrats in the long run will be able to make some political gains, whether this is the election cycle that allows for that to happen or not, seems to be uh, in, in question. Uh, you know, we have a, we have a very short fuse here before you know leading up to a general election. Most people are not paying attention. I, I think that most people probably weren't paying attention uh, to this election, and you know, we we uh, which is unfortunate to to have such a small number of people. Uh, determine the outcome of a campaign where an individual will be selected to be that voice in the state Senate. 
uh, for that entire area, for that that number, you know, that you know, sixty thousand plus individuals that live in that Senate district. So uh, to have that many people represented uh, be selected by such a small number of individuals, you know, that that is concerning. That's not a a, a slight at either candidate. Uh, that's just really, a, you know, just a I think a broken function of our our system uh, where we have you know, turnouts that low, and then you have. In this case, an automatic uh, winner. You know, the uh, the Republican won with thirty seven percent of the vote. So there's in a typical race, you'd have a runoff. Uh, this is a winner take all scenario. So um, the the Democrats have, I think, a, a very qualified candidate there. Someone uh, who is you know uh, Bush is well known uh, from his OU days, uh, and you know now he's he owns a uh, an insurance company, Larry Bush Insurance and Lawton. And so you know, I'm, a lot of people know him in the area. And that's the that's the biggest deal to to overcome partisan advantage, right? Is is you know personal identification, knowing somebody, and if you know them before you know uh, you know who their party is, and you come to you can maybe transcend some of the partisan advantage uh, that the Republican might already have there. But the Republican will start off with a very strong uh, um, you know, margin just based on registration. Neva. I think there's no question. I mean, that that advantage is where where it starts looking toward the uh, general election on December 12th. But you're right, Ryan. I mean, when you when you think that on the Republican side, you had only thirty eight hundred Republicans go out to vote and on the uh, Democrat side. 1250 or around that number i mean and you think of the the thousands and thousands of eligible voters in in the uh in the district uh it it really points to the fact that uh it is increasingly difficult and we talked about the voter participation problem in oklahoma period even in larger election uh elections that in this instance you had the republican nominee uh become become the nominee with 1400 votes and so um it's interesting uh, he also out of four candidates spent the least amount of money i mean he, he i think on the pre-primary report he had uh, reported around $45,000 you had the third place person uh in uh that had exceeded a couple of hundred thousand dollars mm-hmm. so the the money wasn't necessarily it uh all of them had a ground game going on um the the republican nominee dusty deaver uh, is a while he's the son of a local uh, Elgin pharmacist, he is also the pastor of a, um, a church in Elgin, and he really, interestingly enough, kind of centered his whole campaign on two things. Uh, uh, as he rose to some prominence in the area by becoming what was described as a liberty fighter because he opposed all of the COVID-19 safety restrictions. And then uh, he is also unapologetically a hardliner on being self-described as an abolitionist uh, and campaigned on not only abolishing all abortion, including contraception and Plan B, but also ending no-fault divorce. And he uh, said that uh, that there should be public humiliation of divorcees as a means of encouraging couples to remain married. So this was this was what he campaigned on. This is how he won. These were the folks that uh, nominated him among Republicans. And yet the second place uh, uh, person in the race was a former president of the Oklahoma State Medical Association, um, raised Ooh. over a hundred and hundred thousand dollars in her race, Dr. Jean Hashir, and um, she somebody that uh, you know ran a campaign on on a number of issues, including uh, health health care issues. But you had 
the second place winner, the third place winner, who was the uh, the uh, mayor of Elgin, someone who uh, well known with uh, one of the uh, local uh, telephone communications companies down there. And then the and then the fourth person in the race, again, with a profile, uh, someone that uh, uh, had been very engaged and very involved, a very high profile business person. And out of all of that, um, you know, when the dust settles, the Republicans have their nominee. And as you say, the Democrats have someone who has run twice for House seats. And interestingly enough, when you look at those uh, when you look at those those numbers and the House seat, all but two precincts in the House district that he ran twice unsuccessfully are in the Senate district. So you would assume he does have at least a foundation, you know, with his own Democrat base. And it's going to get down to, uh, as we always say, turnout, turnout, turnout. So I would expect that both sides, Republicans and Democrats statewide, are going to focus on this race when it comes down to the wire and make sure Republicans want to hold on to the seat. Democrats clearly may see this as an opportunity to put some time and energy and try to pick up a seat. So it'll be a fascinating one to watch as it moves forward. Well, and as Republicans recently redrew legislative district lines, we we saw that you know more and more of these seats do uh, become decided in a primary. And if you think of who turns out in these primary elections, especially a primary special election, uh, I think that you end up with people that are more ideologically on the extreme end uh, of of the spectrum. And so, you know, where if if we looked at uh, a, a Dusty Deavers in a in a regular primary uh, that had a runoff, I think that you know somebody that has the kind of extreme views that he has uh, on on marriage uh, and and divorce uh, in particular. I mean, how many Oklahomans out there have had a divorce? And and think if you'd had to go through the the uh, the pains of a fault divorce in addition to just like the regular pain of a no fault divorce. Uh, that's I mean that's really taken us back decades and decades into the past. But those extreme views are are welcome by many of the folks that show up in these primary elections with uh, on a special election ballot, and you have these low turnout numbers. If and this had, had, like I said, if this had been a primary and then we'd had a runoff, I think he loses the runoff. He might make the runoff, but I think he loses that runoff because there's more time. That's right. And I think, you know, it, it, it's anybody's guess. And when these IEs, these independent expenditure groups weigh in, some of them did even in the primary, which was a little unusual in that there was there was actually at least one IE that was out opposing the nominee, Dusty Devers, uh, and uh, clearly uh, trying to trying to slow down, uh, trying to slow down his efforts. But at the end of it, it's who shows up and the intensity of his voters far outweighed the ability for any one of the other three to get enough traction. While it was competitive between the first and second place, it's still, there was enough separation there. And as you say, winner take all, you're getting someone that is winning a nomination with, uh, in the instance of the Republican, 37% of the vote. I think, I think on the Democrat side, it would have been about what, 75% of the vote, uh, as I recall, something in there. Yeah, that's right. Um, so it, it, it's interesting. And as we see more specials, maybe people will begin to pay more attention to the fact that they have to make the decision right up front. They don't get they don't get an option for a runoff to make a decision between the top two. They have to make their decision on the primary election itself. While very little happened with the special session called by Governor Stitt, one good thing might be coming out of it. 
State leaders say they would like to make the budgeting process more transparent. The governor wants spending bills available to the public three days before passage, and Senate President Pro Tem Greg Treat says he has a detailed plan to give the public a front row seat to watch the budget come together. Neva, do you think the legislature will follow through with budget transparency in the coming session? Well, I think, I mean, I think Speaker McCall, uh, you know, he made a pledge basically saying that the budget bills would be public for 24 hours before being voted on in committee. And uh, and I think that uh, I think there is kind of a push for transparency. It's one of those things that's easy to talk about. And sometimes then the follow through is, uh, you know, not quite as not, not quite as swift. But in this instance, I think it's again, kind of this posturing and struggle between the three the three leaders, the governor and the two legislative leaders, all three Republicans, and all trying to get some traction or figure out kind of who has the upper hand at any given moment. And I think that what this, again, is a continuation of conversations that will spill over into the legislative session. And I think one begins to wonder how much will they get done in this upcoming session if you have the Senate and the House basically, you know, in the mood to not be very receptive to the other chamber's legislation or act, need for action? And then the governor, you know, clearly kind of uh, having this uh, uh, ongoing problem with the Senate leadership uh, and not being able to kind of move things forward with that kind of blockage taking place. So um, hopefully, you know, through the fall and as we see activity gen up, uh, bills begin to uh, uh, be put in the hopper and, and things start to take shape on what the focus will be next session. We knew what it, you know, was going to be last session, that it was going to be the full on uh, effort uh, on the uh, charter school question. What will it be this time? We're coming into an election cycle that always changes the, the dynamic. And as we've talked about multiple times, we're coming into an era where we have leadership changes on the horizon for both the House and the Senate uh, among on, among the Republican caucuses. And that will be a fascinating um, uh, story to watch unfold as well. Ryan. Well, and you, you continue to see the acrimony between President Pro Temp Greg Treat and Governor Kevin Stitt. Uh, when asked how his plan uh, compares to Governor Stitt's, President Pro, uh, Pro Temp Treat said uh, that his plan would blow Stitt's plan out of the water, uh, which, you know, it's this, this kind of one-upsmanship is uh I mean, but hey you know one-upsmanship in in the name of transparency hey, let's let's do that i mean most of the time when we're playing you know this kind of like brinksman politics in oklahoma it's over really something terrible uh this is you know we're gonna go uh to the mat and see who can come up with the best you know more transparent uh budgeting process you know i'll take that all day long this has been a conversation that people have been having out at the capitol since uh, I mean, I, mm -hmm. I I remember these for the last 20 plus years that I've been out there and they probably happened for 80 years before that. And I, I think that I, you know, I will I do have some empathy uh, for those appropriations chairs. Uh, you know, I used to work for Senator Kelly Haney whenever he was appropriations chair and trying to keep everyone abreast on every development in that budget is incredibly difficult mm -hmm. because even for the folks that are uh, allegedly in charge. If it's a, a moving yeah. it's, it's a moving target. I mean, they're often shuttling between the House, the governor's office, uh, other members offices. You know, they, they have to come up with a budget that will ultimately be able to get a majority vote. And that's a very difficult process for them. And it's tough to do that 
and keep everybody abreast all the time. I, I suppose you could have somebody following them around with uh, with a camera and just live stream the, the entire thing. And you know, maybe if you have a problem sleeping, you know, the uh, you know you could you could tune into that and watch. Uh, every once in a while, you'd wake up because I'm sure that it gets quite loud and contentious. But that's that is a, it's real it's really difficult. And I think that you know seeing this legislation you know more than a day in advance uh, that would be a huge benefit uh, to most. Oklahomans that are interested in this process, uh, for advocates that are trying to fight for uh, appropriations for certain things that they care about, or maybe even cuts to programs that they would uh, like to see go away uh, or be uh, diminished in some some way. Mm -hmm. But to do all of that in the course of a legislative session that runs from the the first Monday in February to the last Friday in May uh, is all you've got is really difficult. And I think that if if we were really going to have a really transparent, open budget process, you know, we should look at doing something like budget-only sessions, where that's all they're doing. Uh, because right now, we're dealing with, you know, we were talking about gender-affirming care legislation. You know, that bill took up hours and hours of debate. Every time that there's an, a bill out there to restrict re- reproductive health care in the state of Oklahoma, hours and hours of debate. Debate. We have all of these political culture war side shows that sucks so much oxygen out of that building. Even even the, the education funding debate earlier this year took up so much time. And so all of these things are happening uh, at the same time that leaders are trying to do the, really the only thing that they're elected to do. The one thing that they have to do when they go into that building in February, b- before they time they, they leave and adjourn sign die, is craft and pass a budget and get assigned by the governor. That's the one thing that they've got to do. But you've, you're doing it in a very uh, you know, uh, pressurized atmosphere, uh, pressure cooker atmosphere, uh, I should say. And it, that's that makes it tough to do everything out in the light of day. So if we had budget-only sessions, somehow I could incorporate that. I really do think that more Oklahomans would have a seat at the table. That would, that you know, I think that that's a decision that probably doesn't get uh, a lot of, uh, you know, support from, from folks out at the Capitol, though. Well, and as you know, Ryan, having been a legislator, you had been, been right there in the middle of all of it, no matter what they say at the beginning of session, that we're going to move through this process quicker, we're going to get things done, we may even adjourn early, and all of the conversation that starts every session, and then there's this fast and furious last week in May deadline pressure of trying to get everything passed and, and wrapped and put 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 on the governor's desk, and it, it, it never changes. And so the conversation, you know, the governor saying that he wants the budget bills uh, public for 72 hours before being taken up for a vote or whether it's 24 hours or whatever it is, the, the bigger picture is, and I thought it was interesting, that Speaker McCall made a point um, in the conversations that that it's fine to talk about the legislature and adopting transparency reforms, but it shouldn't be just that. I mean, he made the point that it also needs to exist in the executive branch. So I thought that was a volley across to, to the governor's uh, the governor and his folks that this is a two-way conversation. You can't just throw it out there and say, legislature, you've got to do this or else you're not being transparent. They're going to come back and say, governor, you and your folks and you're right, you're, you're the folks that you've put in place across state government also have to be equally transparent. So the transparency debate clearly is one that will be front and center, I think, for months to come, as we've seen it teed up this past week. And I don't know this for sure, but I've got to imagine when the governor's team heard that, 
they said, we'll start talking about transparency whenever the Oklahoma legislature uh, uh, makes itself subject to the Oklahoma Open Records Act. Mm -hmm. uh, the executive branch is subject to the Open Records Act. The legislative branch is not. Uh, and I, I would think that the, the governor's team would say, you know, you want to talk about transparency? We'll, you know, we've got to turn over emails uh, just about every day whenever people send us an open records request. So I, I, I agree. I think that it shouldn't. But I think that that's how you're going to get a response from the governor's office if you get a response to that at all. Well, and the interesting thing from the public standpoint uh, is that will the public um, kind of grow weary of this antagonistic back and forth infighting mm. public displays of, you know, kind of the skirmishes uh, much much like what we see in Washington, where you see some polls now coming out where people are saying, you know, let's let's be adults in the room and let's start to move things forward and get issues on the table that can be seriously discussed, not just have this highly conflicted partisan engagement or whatever it happens to be uh, that really just gets nothing done. And so I think I think it'll be interesting to see if voters become uh kind of more keyed in on that and whether that changes their attitude um, when they look at candidates next year uh, when they go to the polls. So it's a mm -hmm. it, it's going to be an interesting thing to watch. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu. Org. Hey there, this is Jenny Mae Harms with KOSU, where we want to talk with you, not just at you. One way we connect with listeners just like you is through social media, like Instagram. So follow us at KOSU Radio, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into KOSU reporting, station news, and even ticket giveaways. Just follow KOSU Radio on Instagram, and we'll see you there.